Hey, y'all! You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This here is another edition of Trying to Hurt Cats, the philosophical podcast where we toss anonymous quotes at anonymous folks and see where it takes us. So moving right along, the first quote, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. I have a friend that um, who supplies a lot of my products for me and my work um, that we sell and he had a 2018 he had a warehouse fire, lost a lot of his merchandise, including a lot of stuff that would be for me, you know, and other people, not just me, but other people. And then a hurricane came through and messed up his shop and his other and his warehouse after they had fixed it after the fire. And then in August of this year, his wife was not feeling well and went to the hospital and they said, well, it's this or that or this and sent her home. And then a month later, she's back in the hospital and they with bile duct cancer, cancer in her bile, the bile ducts, you know, and, and because she had some other work done when she was a teenager, they couldn't do anything about it, and she died three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. She was 44. You talk about a crappy year, mm-hmm. a horrible year, and I don't even, in fact, I've got to send him a note. I haven't even talked to him since she died. I mean, you know, I sent him just a quick message, and like, what do I say to him? But I think even in a relationship like that, he's going to suffer, but at some point, he'll have to, all of us will have to look back and move through that and look at the memories that are still there from the good things that happened. We just watched Mary Poppins, the new movie, My Family and I, and there's a, uh, it addresses that in the story without giving it away. There's um, just a really good thing, especially for children and adults, to remember that stuff is not really lost. It's only lost as, as far as we want to make it lost in our memory. Again. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. It might sound trite, but it, it's a great way for me of kind of putting faith in perspective. It's like the whole Ecclesiastes things where, yeah, something happened, something ended, and if there's no meaning in the universe, then you should weep about it because it's gone forever, and it's never coming back, and there's no hope for ever having anything else like it. But if you believe that all good things, you know, remain and all good things, uh, nothing truly good is lost or ever truly lost, then you can go on smiling, you can go on living with hope. And that's a, yeah, it's a really potent little sentence. I, I kind of, I, I would kind of just use that as kind of like a faith statement. I used to be a minister and I loved it. I loved every second of it. I was working with youth. I had some really amazing experiences of watching people uh, grow spiritually. But it's about 10 years, but there's also there are also so many difficult parts of it, um, church politics and just things that can really make you bitter if you think about it too much. And we, my, my wife and I and uh, our family, ended up about, I want to say about three years ago, leaving leaving that church so that I could start teaching and we tried to leave on the best terms we could as far as we what we could do mm-hmm. but it's still a really really a painful separation and for a while there it's you know as a family it was just kind of like you know where do we go from here and it was really easy to look back on the whole thing just cynically of it was all a waste of time or it was anything really accomplished 
But the more, you know, the more I really get to think about it is kind of realize that every time humans try to minister to each other, every time humans try to be a church together, every time humans try to make a community, there's some sublime, amazing things that happen, but there's also, you know, some imperfections and fallenness that kind of gets in there too. And for me, I mean, that that's a statement of faith for me is to look back and say, no, none of that was wasted. Even the stuff that I would look back, the, the cynical part of me would say, why, you know, why even do that? Why even put myself out there and the way it was going to end or the way it was going to be received? Uh, there's also that sense of, I forget which part of the Bible it is. I think Paul wrote it. Your life is hidden with God and Christ. And to me, that kind of just means that everything good, everything good you did for him, everything that you did, you know, the pure motive to help somebody, to share spiritual life with somebody, even if it didn't have the outcome you wanted, even if chronologically you got, got kind of bitter and burned out over it, that it happened, mm-hmm. that nothing can take that away. And you can smile because it did happen. You experienced it. You were there. You watched God do it. The young people that you think that you helped at that time, has any of them come out of the woodwork later and said, like, confirmed that you helped them? Or, yeah, yeah, that's the coolest part. Okay, and it's usually it's usually some that you never would have even thought you'd ever see again. You know, that all of a sudden come out and just talk about something you don't even remember doing, you don't even remember saying. Because in my mind, I have all these greatest hits moments <laughs> yeah. in my in my ministry where I'm like, how could anybody ever forget that? I can't forget that. Yeah. But for them, it was like, hey, remember that time we took that walk in the woods and I asked you that one question and you said this and I was like, no, I don't remember that I said that. I mean, that doesn't even sound like something I would say. So instead of a greatest but, hit, that was like know, a deep album cut. Deep cuts, yeah. So <laughs> deep, I don't, even, I don't even remember them. <laughs> Again, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. I have learned to look at things and the importance. How important is this? Nothing's important. Life is important. To be at peace is important. So it's like a guy said, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. That's rule number one. Rule number two, everything is small stuff. <laughs> just, just go with it. Do the best you can. I mean, what is it? Uh, AA. Know what you can change. Have the courage to change it. And know what you cannot change and accept that. I think the military service matured me. And they say, you know, as you learn, it, it rips at you. Learning rips you apart. You know, I was ripped, put back together, ripped, put myself back together. I have learned that people die, and there's nothing you will do about it. Ten feet away from you, covered in blood, medic. You know, I think that's what I am first, medic, then dental technician. Basic medical school, my instructor left with kind of like a post-hypnotic suggestion that still works today. He said, you're trained to a certain level, and that level is higher than the training of most civilians. Anytime you see someone hurt, three words will come to your mind. Blood, guts, and shit. And once those three words come to your mind, everything will click, and you're 
back in your training. You know, everything that you've learned will come back to you. And that works. Every time I see a car accident, blood guts and shit, boom. Ask, you can ask my wife. Mm -hmm. You think it's made you a little bit nihilistic? No, I don't like that. Staying alive until you die, surviving, I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's uh, about passing on what you have learned. Every person has something to contribute to someone else. Whether you want to do that or not, that's up to you. But in order for us to make it through our technological infancy, we have to care about people first. And not so much about technology, not so much. Technology is great, but technology does more, a, a lot more harm than I think people realize. When the internet was starting to come about, I said, this is going to be the greatest danger to children that there ever was. Mm -hmm. More than finding a load, your dad's loaded gun. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it just worked out like that. Kids do not know. You have to... Take them by the hand, you have to show them, you have to tell them, you have to, for instance, them. And not enough parents are doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk to some of these millennials, they're just, you know, what do you respect? Money, sex, drugs. Especially around here, there are no jobs around here. What is the, what's the 18, 19, uh, 20 year old going to flip hamburgers mm -hmm. for life? You know, you got to leave here. A lot of them feel they're trapped here. With a certified retirement city, we don't look for industry. Right. <laughs> Industry's not coming here. Geriatrics. You want to change something? No, everybody is going to fight you over change because retirement people don't like change. Mm -hmm. That's why they move to the sleepy little village. They want to keep it sleepy little village. Pull up the drawbridge. Right. You know? okay. So it's all about sharing what you know, what you have learned, to other people hoping they understand and make better choices for themselves. Again, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. Well, we experience a lot of good things in life, maybe a concert or maybe a visit from a friend or a family, and all of it has to end sometime. And you know, it's easy to get depressed and worry about it being over, but the truth of it is you need to remember you had a good experience. You've got a, you've probably stored a good memory. You may have enhanced somebody's life and you know, it's just the way it is. You gotta smile and keep on going. You can't dwell on the good old days. You have to smile, know that, that was it was a good thing and, and there surely will be more to come. But you don't wanna set up a, a negativity spirit and a negative where you prevent any more of those happening, you know, if you Say in the case of uh, your relatives come and visit and they leave and you're not, you know, wish they'd stay longer, wish they'd come more often. You know, you can't start, keep griping at them, griping at them, then they'll never come back to see you, you know. So <laughs> is there ever been anything you think you've tried to make last longer than it should have? Uh, one example I, I have noticed in life is uh, people that go to seminars or some kind of educational, inspirational or what's these Motivational. Classes? Motivational, yeah. The tendency is when they come back, they want to implement everything they've learned at that thing. And I don't know if that's a, an attempt to keep it going or not. And there's something, too, about keeping the enthusiasm going. But I always thought it was very tacky. It never did work out. You know, you need to come back and get back on level ground, get back to where you were in life. You know, you can't operate on somebody else's cloud, even though it was good, good, you know, good to be there and all that. But to try to 
continue that on your own, you, you can't do it anyway. So do you think what they saw or experienced at that motivational seminar or whatever it was, was it even real at all then? Or was it only real in that moment? Both. Harry? Some of these motivational speakers or whoever they are, you know, they'll get you to believe on that moment that you need to do this or you do that or this is the right way. And that's strictly from their point of view, you know. You can almost feel guilty, you know, well, this is the guy, you know, Bible says this, or this is right in life, or whatever, this is the right way, and, and you know, you get caught up in that, but they're not always right. They're, you know, that's just their opinion. You have to always kind of separate, and what works for them may not work for you anyway, but that's just part of life. Is you, you have to experience those situations to develop your own thoughts and your beliefs, and, you know, you have to see what rings true with you, what you think you can benefit from what you think is really true or really to your advantage and then the rest of it you know it's always dreaded being in the church so much always dreaded when somebody returned from some <laughs> kind of pep rally or retreat retreat i knew it's gonna be rough i knew either they come with tiles around their shoulders because they believed in the tile theory or What's the tile or they theory? were gonna is that real yeah what's the tile theory well, it was about servanthood. Somebody went to some seminar and they had some wing-ding guy, you know, talking about they ought to need to be servants to each other and they ought to wear a towel over their arm to show they're ready to serve, you know. Like a waiter. Yeah, like a waiter. So the next day at church, <laughs> all these guys walk around church with towels over their arm, you know. Wow. I thought, you big dummy. You, you know? <laughs> I mean, I know they were sincere and they did what they were told, but, yeah. you know, God give them a brain. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the thing of it is, all they did was produce scorn, and because the other people weren't in that moment, they yeah. didn't experience that. It was good for that person, but they can't replicate that and bring that back per se. They can have that influence on people later on. But did you uh, get a sense that any of them were kind of using it to like look at me? I've got a towel on my arm. I don't know. Possible. They would have had to force me to do it, so I assumed their wife made them do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody in their right mind would have proudly done that. But I, I don't know. <laughs> I do think about this time because any church or any kind of motivational thing or you, uh, t a TED Talk, perhaps, a politician speaking, in the moment, they can kind of convince you of something. But then when they throw the guilt in there, and this is more a problem with the churches, I think, mm -hmm. and it makes me question, like, well, am I even a believer? Because they said you got to do this and that, and you got to have this particular look on your face or... You grew up, obviously, in that situation as well. How have you not been distracted by that? It's very, very tough. I think if you're raised in a Christian family, a devout Christian family, a practicing Christian family, I think what happens sometimes is a person that maybe was raised in the church and the faith all their life, when they decide to make a personal commitment, it's not real dramatic. It's not uh, running around the church and all, but then... We saw some that did, you know, very emotional, you know, and there was some guilt, you know. Hey, I've been in this thing a long time. How come I don't feel that way? Mm. And there's times that you're made to believe that you're supposed to say amen and praise the Lord every five minutes in church back when, you know, I was younger. And, you know, it's just foreign to it. I don't care if I was raised in church and in the parsonage. That was never me, you know, even though I may have tried to, it just it felt stupid, you know. Yeah. Because it wasn't me. and it's, I felt like when I've tried to do that, I was lying. Right. Obviously, ones that were very vocal and demonstrative, they were very natural, and they seemed very sincere. And, you know, 
And I think a lot of it has to do with, it's an emotional interaction for one thing, it has nothing to do with faith. But we are emotional creatures. But I think a person that's changed ways from a very dramatic way, they're going to be more emotional about it, they're going to be more demonstrative about it, because if they were in what they call deep sin, they used to call it back then, people that just really were bad for a long time, you uh, know. Usually if you stayed in the church and went regular and kind of behaved yourself and followed the rules, you weren't in deep sin. Uh, you were in serious sinner. Yeah. Deep sin is the ones that it's had fine. no regard for the Bible or God. I think it has something to do with it. Because I, I think people were very emotional back there about everything, you know. I know for me, you finally have to realize, you have to go by what the Bible says. The Bible says it's a faith. And that's what it is. It's a faith. It's not about emotional reaction. And I've heard people get up and testify that they decided they was going to get spiritual help. And they told the Lord, you got to give me a feeling. you got to give me a feeling. i got to know. you got to tell me. And they said, God gave him a feeling. Well, he probably had to because he wouldn't even get anywhere with him otherwise, you know. <laughs> I'm not demeaning those people. Right. But it kind of makes you, it, when they stand up in church and say that, you know, that's okay if it works for them. But it, they almost imply that everybody has to have some kind of feeling or something. And I, I think it does more harm sometimes. But... The, the scripture I always like to go back to, it says, work out your own salvation. So that means your salvation is not going to be the same for everybody. Uh, we're not going to react the same. We're not going to act the same. We aren't going to have the spiritual hiccup, praise the Lord, necessarily. Don't mean we're going to get up and testify every Wednesday night. You know, we're all different. God made us different. But then somehow, when you get in the church community, they throw that out the window sometimes. But you're supposed to act like Christian. And that's how you get elected to a church board if you act like a Christian. <laughs> yeah. One of the examples I remember, I was on some kind of committee, a district committee, and I went to this district meeting. I think it was a youth thing. I don't know why I was in there. I knew nothing about youth. I don't know if <laughs> it was either. a youth. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember uh, they opened with prayer or something. They called on, Joe Schmo, you pray for us. And boy, he jumped right in there, full gear. Man, he was... It was old timers would say he was praying the fire down. You mean he was burning the building up? And I'm and I'm standing there. I don't feel and everybody else was hooping and hollering, amen. And and I'm there and I'm thinking, you know, I'm glad he's praying. I you know I I'm impressed. He does a good job, but I don't feel like running around the room right now. You know, you feel guilty about that. Mm-hmm. Well, two months later, kind of find out he was having an affair with a lady in the church. Whoa! So that didn't prevent so. It has to make you want you, you, you need to always go back to be yourself. It's hard to do because if you're raised in the church, you've seen so many actions of Christians and how you perceive they're supposed to act. You have all these preconceptions that uh, when you decide to be converted that you're supposed to do that. It's going to come automatically. Well, that's not true. People have said, uh, be careful what you pray for on those lines. People that have prayed for, you know, well, I want the religion like they got, you know. Ones that's more vocal and more entertaining, so to speak, or more spirit-filled, not spiritual, but spirit-filled maybe. And you, you pray, well, I'd like to have that. Well, they remind you, well, you don't know what trouble that person has went through to get to that point. So you better be careful what you pray for. If you want to have that spirited and that emotional release to express your faith, you may have to have half your family murdered and your house burned down. That's the reason that person is more emotional, maybe. So they're going to work out your own salvation. Don't try to be somebody else. That's hard to do because there's a lot of pressure. There used to be. I think it's a little less now, you know. They've lightened up on that where 
they'll basically tell you now if you don't feel like clapping your hands, if you don't feel like singing, if you don't feel like standing up, you know, be yourself. And that's, that's it's better they do that. Again, don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. When my both my grandparents on my mom's side were still alive, I would go to their Sunday school class. It was funny because I was at the time I was in my 30s, and I was going to Sunday school class with people in their 70s, 80s. Were you in the seniors class? I was in the seniors class. Really? Yes. And it was Mr. Chambers that taught the class. Well, he Sunday was our government class. teacher from high school. Mm-hmm. Now, so what was the cutoff date for, for seniors class? Was it like 29 on up? I wasn't married because there was kind of like a young couples class, and I didn't fit in anywhere. And I, I love Mr. Chambers so much. You know, he had such great Sunday. We'd have, I don't mean he to just get, blow my mind. I don't mean to get off in the weeds, but he was probably the best teacher I can think of that I had in high yes. school. And I wish I could have told him that. You know. Yeah. But go ahead, you're And he, like in school, I saw a whole different side of him. You know, like in school, he was like kind of stern and, mm-hmm. you know, you just, you know, you didn't want to mess with him. Mm-hmm. And he was such a softy. I have never felt so sorry for someone in my life. There was a guy that, you know, he was probably in his 80s at the time. And he told me the most sad story. His dad just left him, the family, and went out west somewhere, just disappeared. And I think he was in, like, Colorado. And he tracked him down. And I think he was, he said he was working at a hotel somewhere, like Colorado or Wyoming. So he went there and tracked him down and just, like, kind of confronted him. It's like, you know, why did, you know, why did you leave and stuff? And he just, like, I'm sorry. I just basically told him, you just, I don't really care for you. His own son. Dang. Somebody was telling this story yeah. in Sunday school class? Yeah, Sunday school class, you know. Which it was one of the members there? Yeah. But this wasn't Chambers himself. It, no. Okay. Well, his dad was an alcoholic uh-huh. growing up, and I think he had some really hard times with his dad. Hmm. There was a, another lady in the class. We had a discussion in class, and she had fairly recently lost her husband. She was so upset about losing him that she was like questioning her faith, mm-hmm. and to the point where. Why did God bring this person into my life just so that he could leave? And it was really sad because, you know, she was really upset and she was crying a little bit. And we were just like trying to say, well, didn't you guys have good times together and such? Said, yeah, but, you know, why is he gone and stuff? And I was just like, I can't understand. And matter of fact, it was such a emotional thing for her. She quit coming to church after that. Like, I never did see her again. After that Sunday school. Do you think she lost her faith? I, I think so. Bad things happened. And she was like, I guess maybe she thought she was immune from that since she was a Christian and stuff. Bad things should only happen to bad people. Yeah, but the rain falls on everyone. Right. She never got to the smiling part. It's like, you know, okay, he was in my life. I know he's in heaven. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see him again. Right. We had all these good times together. But she just wanted to cry over it. It also remembers, too, and I'm not going to go into great detail, it's just about, you know, about this thing that happened to me when I was younger. A certain um, person that was kind of in my life, nothing ever came of it. Sometimes I get to thinking about that. For people that. listening, somebody that you fell for, and she was pretty wonderful. And I just thought something would come out of it, and absolutely nothing came out of it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And just I, sometimes I think about, like, how my life would be different. 
if it worked out. And it's kind of hard to smile about or be happy about, like, okay, this person was briefly in my life mm-hmm. and just, like, how well we got along and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a long story, and we're, we're not going to go into it here. But um, <laughs> it just, it's hard to smile about that situation because... Well, you maybe should smile that it didn't happen in some ways. Yes. I always think about that, too. I think that sometimes, because I know there was a lot of girls that I really, really, I thought sincerely loved, but they didn't return that emotion. In a few cases, after they had rejected me, I would either get to know them better somehow, just as a friend, or hear something about them. I'm like, whoa. I dodged a bullet in a way. I think about some girls that like me and I didn't return the the uh, emotion and they might have dodged a bullet too <laughs> in some ways yeah I think maybe I could have changed her life but then I get to thinking too she was like really messed up mm-hmm. a lot of stuff had happened in her life that maybe she was too far gone well, you can't fix people right and then I get to thinking well that situation happened had it not happened had I never came in contact with this person would my life be different now because for a while, I held out hope that things would pan out. Uh-huh. And I waited so long that I just didn't care no more about getting right. involved with anybody. It's hard to say. It would be interesting that if when we die, God would let us look at different movie reels. Like, yeah. had you chose this path? There's a great movie called Sliding Doors. I think about that movie sometimes. Who's the, the girl that plays that? Gwyneth Paltrow? Was it like one scene, like she misses a subway, and then one scene she makes the subway in time. Well, when she makes the subway, she gets home in time to find her fiancé, husband, or whoever sleeping with someone. Mm -hmm. And then the second one, she misses the subway and then gets home late enough where she misses catching him. Mm -hmm. And it just shows how her life could have been different. Yeah, well, just ask God. Can I see the alternate ending yeah. to my movie? <laughs> well, hopefully she's there and we can, you know... Make out in heaven? Yeah. The next quote, If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. All of us want to avoid pain. It's natural to want to avoid pain. You know, we're geared to do that. I think we're designed to do it. This comes up a lot. It was something that probably served us well in the jungle. Survival and all that. But what about emotional pain? It can serve us also like if we have a a toxic relationship, you know, someone that's not good for us to be with, it maybe could trigger flight, Mm -hmm. fight or flight. That's true, yeah. (laughs) But we, we go to such great lengths to avoid it and to dismiss it. I find in pastoral counseling or in church period people are eager to dismiss pain i want to dismiss my own pain but i really want to dismiss your pain more so so tim you come to me and you sit down and you say oh i'm just i just am so i'm so depressed and um, i can't you know i can't find a job and i've looked everywhere and there's no jobs available and i'm just i don't even want to get out of bed Mm -hmm. in the morning and your typical Christian response will be, "Brother, you just need to pray through that." <laughs> oh yes, oh man, it's a pet peeve of mine. And you just and, then, and you, when you ask what that means, or how, well, how do I do that? And there's no, 
There's no explanation. Right. And so those canned answers to me are not about helping you solve your problem. It's about saying, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to experience your pain. I don't want to dismiss it. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't exist. Okay. So biblically, where is that coming from? How do they justify saying stuff like that? Because obviously Jesus felt pain. Obviously. Yeah. And uh, suffered. I think almost all the disciples end up murdered somehow. I mean, that's physical pain, but they obviously were lonely. And Wow, that's a good question. Biblically, where does that come from? A lot of times I'll hear the things about the inheritance and us being adopted into the family of God and that we're his children now and the Father knows how to give good gifts. And, and so maybe take that and interpret it that we should never suffer pain. But again, I, I always will bring it back to Jesus. And I'll mm-hmm. say, how can we be exempt from pain when not even Jesus was exempt from pain? I find the phenomenon sometimes of people that, um, it sounds very judgy when I say that, people. People that do this. <laughs> but it's true. There are a lot of folks that seem to gravitate towards the writings of Paul. And they seem, they're not as drawn to the Gospels as much. And I'll give you an example. One time I was having an argument with a, uh, an in-law, ex-in-law, <laughs> and about some theological thing, I'm sure. And I quoted Jesus, and they said, who said that? And these people were very devout fundamentalists, and they kept throwing quotes of Paul at me about this. I said, well, Jesus said that. And they're just like, where? <laughs> and they thought I had made it up. And it, it was really an eye-opener for me that that I was not as drawn to Paul as I was to the Gospels, and they were on the opposite, which makes me wonder what was my own psychosis. Right. Do you think that's part of it, or do you see that pattern? I don't know that I've ever noticed that pattern, but I will now be looking for that. Okay. Um, (laughs) Sorry to mess up your rule. That's all right. I definitely know know, people will disregard the Old Testament in favor of the New, which I think is inappropriate. I don't think that's the correct thing to do. Biblically, again, with the dismissal of pain, it goes back to Job, which is the oldest book, you know, in the Bible. Chronologically, it's the first one written. Right. And so you had this story that's one of the first things anybody wrote down that's about a man who suffers. So Job, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Job, Job is a righteous man who God allows the devil or Satan to test him through pain and suffering. And so he loses everything he has, his family, he gets diseased, he loses all his money, and he's sitting down and just a pile of ashes and his three friends Bill Dad so far and Eliphaz come to visit them <laughs> and they immediately start trying to dismiss it what have you done you know what did you do how did you offend God yeah and that question is an attempt to solve the problem you know because if we can identify how you caused this to happen uh, then we can fix it and be on our way. Which is not a, it's a, not an innovable cause. I mean. It's not. No. I mean, and that's another trait of, like, we talked in a different uh, conversation about men suppressing things. And our, also, as men, we want to fix things. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot about that with my wife. A lot of times when she's telling me things, it's not to be fixed. It's <laughs> yeah. just to listen. Yes. And so you're right. It is noble to want to fix sometimes. But, but if a person is not asking you, how do I fix this? It may be that our our goal is to be with them in their pain and not fix it, not dismiss it, and not let there be a simple answer to this that we can put an equation to it and then we understand it and it no longer, there's no longer mystery and there, now it's over. 
I have this frustration with folks that wallow in their misery and they don't want any kind of solution. It doesn't seem like, and it's perpetual. How do you deal with that? And because there's times I think like, oh, I'm kind of done with you, man. There's nothing I can do. And all you're doing is, uh, is spreading the suffering to me. Yeah, I'm guilty of doing that myself. Making me miserable? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, sorry. I'll get down and stay there, and it's as if I don't want to leave. In a way, I'm embracing this sort of Eeyore mentality, and, mm-hmm. and it will get on my wife's last nerve. She'll finally say, I'm so done with this. I'm so tired of hearing you talk about this. And it's understandable. And does that make you snap out of it when she says that? No, but as we've gone on, when she says that, it does at least bring to my attention that I'm choosing to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the awareness of I'm, I must, to some degree, like being miserable <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> You're happy when it rains. Yeah. yeah. Your quote, if you don't transform your pain, you'll transmit it, reminds me of another saying that um, this is kind of a good old boy version of that. Hurt people hurt people. And it's true. If you've got a dog, people like rescue dogs and things now, you know, you deal with a dog that's been abused and you go to try to pet that dog, like it will try to bite you. Its frame of reference, its pain hasn't been transformed to anything, mm-hmm. you know? It's just the memory of all of the things that have happened to me. I feel so empathetic with people that have a really toxic family of origin in which they're being hurt from the beginning, just out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And they, they become older people who, if they don't get to the root of why they do the things they do, then they will hurt people. And they'll take the same thing into their new family and they'll replicate the behavior mm-hmm. and replicate the things that they were hurt by. Have you ever heard of um, Henry Nowen? Who? Henry Nowen. No. He's, a, he's a, another Catholic priest who's a writer. He's mm-hmm. fantastic. And he has a book called The Wounded Healer that I find so profound. And it's illustrating Jesus as the person who was wounded. You know, Jesus is the wounded healer. He was wounded, but then he transformed that pain into an instrument of healing. Mm. You know, he took he took the, the suffering, the difficulty, and transformed it into healing. There's the transformed pain. Kind of easier said than done for us more. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Redemption through suffering. I think it's the Christ-like path. I've got one individual who really hurt me. When people say, who's the most influential person in your life, a lot of times I name this guy. <laughs> but not for good reason. Yeah, I mean, because he put me in a place where I had to learn to transform this pain, and it, it redeemed me in another level huh. in Christ. Does he know this? That I would call him influential. Even though that what he did maybe was bad, in a way it pushed you into a good place? Or? No, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Even though I've transformed the pain, like and I would say, like, oh yeah, I've forgiven him. Mm-hmm. I'll, we don't live anywhere near each other. I've not seen him mm-hmm. since like the the end of the event. I'll find myself googling him, and when I find myself typing his name into the Google mm-hmm. bar, I realize like mm, I've got I'm holding on to this. I right. can't let it go, and it's almost like I don't want to let it go. Like I need some little part of me well, to hate it, him. <laughs> In my opinion, what you just said, it, I, I think it means in a way that you still care. Because one thing I'm guilty of, like people that have done me wrong, sometimes I'll just like recreate them in my head as like, eh, they're not even worth my time. And that's not right. 
so I don't Google them because I don't care. <laughs> but personally, I had to do that because I did care for so long, and it really just bothered me that they would you know, hurt or do these awful things. And I think that I was at fault. I would never look at them. And finally, I realized that maybe I wasn't you know, complete, I wasn't the only guilty person. But So maybe it's good that you're still Googling them. In maybe, a way. yeah. It would be point. better if you could just find the guy and have a nice chat. Well, he somehow, he I guess one of the websites that I'd looked him up on, tells you who has looked you up and so he uh, sent me an email I see that you've been googling me or something and it, it was cloaked in this sort of reconciliation language uh-huh. I might be reading too much into it but it was a statement to me he uh-huh. was making a statement uh, I wish I could remember the words of the email and I saved it but to me it was like it wasn't an attempt to reconcile even though it was in that language to me it was like a gotcha uh, sort of thing. Dang. Yeah, maybe you let that go. The relationship was never good to begin with. Right. It never was a healthy relationship from the first minute. Sometimes there's just nothing you can do. You right. Because it takes two to tango to want to reconcile. Here's how we can look at that. That pain was in a professional environment, a ministry environment. He was a supervisor of mine. Mm-hmm. So part of the way I was transformed through that pain is like learning what I don't want to do and what not to do as a leader. Had the pain not transformed me, had I not transformed it, I likely would have replicated it even in my current positions. Mm-hmm. A hurt person that hurts people. And furthermore, the realization that it's a hurt person that hurt you is really important because mm-hmm. he was hurt. Right. He was just doing the best that he could do. Yeah, there's a Buddhist saying that's kind of similar to that, like that every monster there's a hurt child or something inside, buried somewhere. Again, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. Well, I think it kind of goes along with that. My pastor said, if you don't deal with your pain or your stuff, your stuff will deal with you. If we don't transform our pain, in other words, turn it into something positive, then we'll end up transmitting it, afflicting our pain on other people. You know, they have a saying in the world that hurt people hurt people, hurt people hurt other people. And I feel like, you know, when you talk about transforming something, that's that's kind of taking it and making it into something completely different. Uh, pain mm-hmm. into, like the scripture tells us in Isaiah, I will give you beauty for ashes. Mm-hmm. You know, for all the pain you've been through, I will, that's one of the promises from God, I'll give you beauty for that. So if you don't transform that, you're going to live out of your pain and you're going to transmit it. Because I feel like that's exactly what I did in my life uh, early on. I lived in pain and I hurt other people. I make bad choices to hurt other people. You know? Hosea 2.15, I will transform your valley of acre into a door of hope. And one message that I heard early on was that God will take the pain in your life or that thing that was your biggest struggle, your biggest pain, and heal you from it and turn around and make it a door of hope for somebody else. In other words, when he delivers you, he'll send you back to the same people to bring them out. And so that's what I wanted. When I mean, I didn't have any hope in life. And so when I had that hope and when Jesus delivered me. I mean, I knew so many other people that were dealing with the same things, or I encountered other people, even more people that were dealing with the same things that I was dealing with. And, and so I just allowed God to do that, take my pain or, and mm-hmm. to bring hope to somebody else. Did you ever transfer your pain to your, your parents? 
I'm 52 now, and even though the things that I went through, I never have been like disrespectful to my mother, like to her face. Now, what the things that I did <laughs> about her back, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, you pray God. Okay, but anyway, I was a runaway, so that caused her a lot of pain because, like, a lot of things are generational. Her mother, which is my grandmother. You know, she wasn't big on saying, I love you. My mom wasn't either, you know, and then turn around and I struggled with it. But when I realized how detrimental it was, I thought, well, I'm breaking this cycle. So I purposely would tell my kids or, you know. Um, but, yeah, I do think that I transferred my pain to my mom, like, by running away. I ended up in juvenile detention centers, but I had a lot of pain. But I don't know that she even realized how much pain I was in from my dad's death and her. You know, she made a statement one time to me when, after he was killed, that he deserved to die. I was seven, you know, and he was my hero. He was a hero to me. Even though he didn't live in the home, he he loved me. He took care of me. And she made that statement because they didn't get along, that he deserved to die. And so, I mean, it's like something broke in me at seven years old. And You know, you had children later on. Did you ever catch yourself transferring that pain to your children? Because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, we really do become what we hate. Like what I hated, like seeing in my mom, mm-hmm. I had to purposely fight, you know, being that to my own children. So, so you were self-aware, you not at first, not in the beginning. It wasn't until my, I had my first child when I was 19, 19, 20, and 21. They were stair steps. And so I didn't get <laughs> saved till I was 26. And that's when the, you know, God started to really deal with me about. And I realized there's, there can be a different life here. You know, you don't have to do the same things you, that you saw, or you don't have to be what you saw. And you don't. Can you give me an example of like one thing that you, like you did, and you're like, oh man, that's my mom, or that, oh man, that's the pain, you know, I'm just passing it on. Yeah, one example is, you know, I used to spank my, I don't, I'm not against spanking at all, don't get me wrong, not at all, mm-hmm. but that was my answer to everything. Think Excessively. Yeah. yeah, didn't think about punishment. If you did something wrong, you're getting a whooping, that's just the bottom line. Matter of fact, I had to talk to my kids about it. I said, that's not the answer, you know, because that's what they wanted. I said, that's not the answer. Well, you spanked us, I said, but you know, some of them I don't regret at all, but it shouldn't have been all the time, mm-hmm. you know, when you mess up. And I'm not talking about beating or abusing, but yeah. that's not always the answer. And one thing that I didn't do with my kids was listen to them. We're sitting down, you did something wrong, and they try to talk. No, you're just wrong. And you're just, you know, and that's just the bottom line. I don't care. And why can't I? Because I said so. That kind of stuff instead of that communication. Uh-huh. So after that, you started to communicate and say, okay, now why did you put your brother in the dryer dryer. and turn turn it on? Yeah, (laughs) What's your rationale? Yeah, it was a struggle to be different from what you knew. It's just, it was a real struggle, but I knew that it was detrimental. Well, I teach a parenting classes. When people get divorced in Hopkins County, they're mandated to go to parenting classes if they have children under 18. And that's, that's what I talk to them a lot about, you know, the mistakes I made even going through my divorce. With my ex-husband, I was pretty bitter because he broke up our family and blah, blah, this and that. And so we fought a lot in front of the kids or you can't see your dad day because, you know, those kind of things. It's just you have to wise up to that, mm-hmm. that, you know, and quit being selfish for one thing. You mm-hmm. know, this is really hurting my kids. If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. When you have pain, just like when you have joy, it becomes, you have ownership of it. And 
when you have ownership of things, then you have the ability or the uh, prerogative to give it away or to keep it. So give an example of, of maybe in your line of work or some pain that you see both people transferring without realizing it and how, how would they transform it? In my line of work, the way people transfer pain is that maybe they accumulated this pain from past experiences. And, and then what they did is they carried it to new experiences, new situations, new relationships, and they didn't let those relationships unfold without looking through the lens of that past pain. Let's take a, a relationship where the relationship may have been abusive, either emotionally or physically. And let's say it was very unsafe to speak your mind in that relationship. But, as we know, relationships take work. So, if you need to give each other feedback, because that's how you grow together and that's how you fix things, then that's necessary and important. But if you came from an abusive relationship and someone gives you feedback, which was usually uh, a precursor to some sort of abuse, then you can't receive the feedback. You're either afraid of it or you have a reaction to it as if you are about to be abused. So you know you got some problems, yes. but the people bringing you the bad news that you've got problems seem to use it. They use it to look down on you or to control you. And uh, how does someone deal with truth coming from a person that they don't care for or maybe uh, someone who's using it to hurt them again or we have intellect and then we have instinct and so our intellect gives us the ability to study and read books and all that stuff but then you know when someone cares about you you, you know uh, when they talk to you when they're coming from a place of love and, and a heal perspective or a place of helpfulness mm -hmm. or being helpful and a place where they are trying to harm you their feedback is not uh, it's not critical feedback or constructive feedback. It's, it's something to manipulate you or something to um, um, maybe uh, uh, chip away at, at your, uh, your self-esteem or your self-concept of who you are. You know the difference. Okay. Uh, it, even though you can't articulate it verbally, you know the difference. I always want to ask that because you see people in relationships that obviously they must have loved each other at one point but then it's kind of disintegrated down into just griping at each other and even though the gripes might actually be legitimate constructive criticisms but it just seems like they have oh man they, they use it as ammo against each other maybe it actually turns into ammo when you are unconscious about that transference uh, a lot of times People are transferring uh, the pain and they're unconscious, they're, meaning they're not aware that that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. When you can tell someone is not or deliberately or consciously or mindfully trying not to transfer their pain is that they will acknowledge that they have a past experienced or past issue or some sort of level of past pain from that situation. They'll say, well, that's a sore spot for me and they might give you some history. Okay. or something. So they're at least self-aware. Yeah, they have an awareness. And some people, they just lash out, or they resist, or they feel victimized by the interaction. 
regardless uh, of whether the person's coming from a place of just trying to sort of get to a place where there's a connection or not, that the person... Especially in our current culture, there's the problem of the, the victimization or victim exploitation, where, you know, we have these Oprah kind of moments where people get on and they talk about how bad their life was, but it and doesn't seem like they're using it to get better or to figure out how to improve themselves or get, you know, heal the pain. They're using it to uh, woe is me or uh, give an excuse for every horrible thing that they do. This kind of hits a hot button topic for me and the reason is is because I believe that the only people that don't have responsibility for their place of being a victim are people who are, have disabilities or children when they are in situations with adults or in powers of authority in a situation where a person has some hold over you for your basic needs being met then I think yes you are a victim. One of the things that we tend to do is in some cases we enable victims by not giving them tools and information and empowering them to decide that they're no longer a victim and that's information. You know, I know that like a couple times, like when someone may found out something bad from my past, like something that had happened to me that I didn't think much of or, or I was kind of over it. And the sympathy I got was amazing. You know, I was like, wow, oh, I like this. And I can see where people could use that as the, their ace card to get out of trouble or it just they just like being <laughs> coddled, you know. That's funny that you say that uh -huh. because there's actually studies that actually talk about that. Okay. And... The reason it's funny is because some people didn't identify some things that have happened to them in their past until someone as as trauma uh -huh. until someone told them that it was right. <laughs> well, that's that's funny you should say that because there was a quote that, from another podcast about uh, like children don't have a sense of self pity until some stupid adult introduces it to them. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like um, some people feel like being a victim is an, an advantage. And in some cases, I guess it can be, but then it also has some disadvantages that they probably is just all kind of one situation to the next. Not all children or adults who came from past situations interpret those situations as things that will follow them the rest of their life or things that they will have to transfer as pain in their future. Some people transcend those experiences and, and take them and keep them as as a part of the, the learning and a part of the building blocks of who they are. I myself, I came from a family. Um, early on, um, my father was abusive emotionally and physically. You can take those experiences and you can hate them and regret them and reject them. That experience, I don't see myself as a victim today. I only look at how those experiences turned me into the man that I am today. Um, they taught me things about compassion and relationships. I mean, there's two things to look. You can look at what you learn from those experiences and how you can take something away that's beneficial that will help you go out into the world and do something with that experience, just like anything, or you can sit and you can regret that it happened to you. And but I assume this stuff didn't happen overnight, like your view on this. No, no, but I have to say, uh, my father drowned when I was very young. He drowned? He drowned when I was very young. And it seemed to happen quickly because when he was finally gone, honestly, 
I had some mixed emotions along with the sadness. There was also some relief. So it's kind of a strange thing. So what I had to do is, what I had to really work through during that time mostly was working through the guilt of feeling okay that he was gone. Yeah. If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. I had somebody in my life when I was young, and I was wrestling with painful things that had been done to me, in particular related to my biological father, and a, a wise person told me, well, it helped him to realize that most people in this world do the best with the hand that they're dealt, that very few people intend to end up hurting people. Very few people intend to be evil and wicked and nasty. And that if you approach life that way, you might be wrong, but at least it kind of presupposes you with a perspective of grace. And I've just decided that that's a better posture to enter. Well, I agree with that almost totally. Because (laughs) even... Everybody you look at have done a lot of damage in this world, whether it's in personal matters or in, in grand like genocidal scales. Right. You can see where the good intentions were. It's scary to see it because then it means, well, then where could I go wrong? And to me, that kind of mindfulness is critical. And anybody that, that puts on blinders can end up going down similar paths. I think that the thing where they step into evil, if it's made it known to them that they're hurting other people, are there, you know, causing suffering or killing, or how do you want to measure that? And they continue to do it. Right. They've lost empathy, or they just don't care. And I think that the the power of this idea of transforming pain in order to not transmit it. I mean, transmitting our pain is obvious because when we are wounded, and life will wound us, you know, it's just guaranteed something's going to happen. When we're wounded, there's it's every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? So, I mean, there's some basic physics that are at work, you know, and where is that reaction going to come? And the problem is when we're, when we're not mindful about it, we're just blind, you know, so we don't know where the stabbing reaction is going to come from. And it's probably going to hit the people that we love the most, that we're closest to. But the thing about transforming pain is first we have to be honest and aware of that pain. And most of the time we're not. And this is where I'm really grateful for a lot of what is coming out in more recent years about understanding things like PTSD and trauma and the effects of trauma. And even with the whole Me Too movement and stuff. I mean, the relatively recent science and psychotherapy and and spiritual thinking is finally dealing with trauma as something that's not only an emotional event, but underneath the emotion, there's a biochemical thing going on. Mm -hmm. And that that trauma lingers in a physiological way inside the brain. Mm -hmm. And so when we don't know that, and we don't confront that and, and find healing for that underlying trauma, our brains are remarkably adept at very effectively burying that, you know, and covering it up and putting really, really functional scar tissue over it. Mm-hmm. The woundedness, though, it's like a pressure cooker that will build up and it will it will seep out one way or another and it will hurt us and other people. So absolutely, we need to first be aware of what that woundedness is and 
um, that requires a lot of work, you know, and, and then we can transform it by ascribing meaning to it. And there's different schools of thought, and some people can do it in different ways. There's lots of different paths to this. Do you mind sharing like how you've transformed your pain? I mean, in a real sure. practical way? Sure. Well, it's complicated, and it's long-term. The first thing is to practice what I call preemptive forgiveness. <laughs> so it means... Uh, forgiving people before they've asked for it or before they deserve it. Okay. Because forgiveness ultimately, in my opinion, is about the power that it gives the forgiver. It's not so much about what the forgiven deserve. And that's the model we see in Christ. That's the model we see in the Bible. It's, you know, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. The thing about forgiveness is that it's, it emboldens, it empowers me as the forgiver. And it allows me to take that first step towards my own recovery as it were. It starts there. It also helps me to start to detach a little bit and to, to think and understand and become more mindful and, and fully cognizant of what's going on because the emotions that are attached to this thing cloud thinking so much that pain, again, uh, it's so powerful and that protective mechanism is so good at what it does that it's like an orb of scar tissue that we can't see through. So the first thing I think that forgiveness does, and it's not an instantaneous process. It, it, it can often start with a, a choice and a word and an action, but that doesn't change anything neurologically or even spiritually. It's just it's a start. It's, mm -hmm. um, I kind of compare it to a, a circuit breaker in your house. When lightning strikes your house, the circuit breaker is designed to absorb the blow so that everything else in your house doesn't blow up and catch on fire, you know, so that, and so it does its job, but all those circuits are fried, you know, and so you have to go down and find and, and replace those fuses. Mm -hmm. And neurologically, and I think emotionally, spiritually, when trauma happens, it's like a circuit that's blown, and we have to go back and find that circuit. That's where the pain lives in us. And we don't just flip a switch and then it's fine. Mm -hmm. There's work to go find those wires and, and find healing in that. And so for me, it was a process and it, and it started with acknowledging it. And then it was like a long, you know, 10 years of awareness of going, oh, here's another way that this is affecting me. Here's another way that this, it's affecting how I identify myself. It's affecting how I relate to other people. Oh, it's affecting how I make or don't make friendships. And, and it's still, I'm, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, Michelle noticed that I don't like to have my back to any door. <laughs> little yeah. things, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's always little things that, that we notice. But, but so there's an ongoing kind of process of realization of things little light bulbs going on throughout the house and go, oh, here's another thing that that trauma causing you. So that's just sort of, that's how mindfulness works. You know, it's just awareness. But then what you do is once the light goes on and you recognize, okay, here's another way this trauma affected me, then you get the opportunity to say, okay, now what do I do about that? And that's when you take that thing and you, you think about it and you make an active choice. And that's, I think, where the uh, uh, transformation happens. You can say, okay, I'm going to... Uh, now respond to this pain. I'm going to grieve this. And sometimes it's re-grieving the pain over and over again. Um, but, but it gets easier. You kind of develop a, a habit of going, yep, that shouldn't have happened to me. You know, like that this, this 
was not right. This wasn't just. So there's a, there's a lamenting that happens. There's a grieving. And you get better at it you know, once you've learned this process. And then there's putting things back in where they should be. And you go, okay, now that I know this about myself, what can I do differently? And a big part also is when you have community. So when you have other people around you that you can say, oh, hey, to my wife or to my friends, to people that are close to me. So this trauma tends to motivate me to do this and I'd really like to not do this. So can you help? If you see me doing this, can you in love and grace challenge me? And if you see me retreating in this way, can you pull me back? If you see me steamrolling in this way, can you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so it's a communal, there's a community aspect to it, but the community can't force somebody to do this. It has to be something that we invite into our lives and we we say, yes, I need other people to help me through this. I need I need the village, I need the, I need the other 11 disciples to you know, <laughs> fill in where I'm weak. And then over time, we share our story and we you know, share it over and over again. And then we meet other people and they go, oh, I'm, I'm at this point in this journey and no one could ever understand this. And you go, well, actually, let me share my story. And so the, the power of sharing the story of our pain, especially those of us who are a little bit maybe farther down the road with this, is, is really effective to people who are thinking, oh, no one will ever understand. No one's been through what I've been through. Because again, that scar tissue is so good that it convinces us, oh, the best thing to do is hide this thing deep, 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 deep. Mm. No one will ever understand this. No one, this is a shameful thing. This is, so just bury this thing down. And there are some people that don't get to this until they're on their deathbed, if they do. And there's other people that, you know, when they hear you share your story, they go, holy crap. Like, I'm not alone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden their circuit is, they're going, well, can I free up this thing? And you go, yeah, yeah. That's what this Lazarus thing is all about, you know. <laughs> and so that, to me, it's, it's very different than I make a, a proclamation and I say something one time and I feel, and it's true that sometimes you have those cathartic moments and you make declarations. That's very good. And you have big emotional responses. As long as you understand that the next day there's still more work to be done. It's like the people who say, oh, I'm going to lose weight. And so January 1st, they get up and they do their jumping jacks and they go for a run, <laughs> and, you know, and then by Valentine's Day, it's all over. All right. uh, this is the kind of work that becomes a habit of, of your life and that transformation of pain. The other thing that happens, it's really beautiful, is that once you develop a habitual nature of this, you'll find that you're constantly getting hurt in little ways, but it just doesn't stick to you the way it, it did before. Like, mm. because you lose your taste for bitterness, you lose your taste for resentment. And it's like, if people wound me now, I can recognize it quicker. I can grieve it very quickly and move on. Life is too short for me to, to internalize it. And I'm going to save my grieving now for stuff that's really worth grieving. And when it comes to petty stuff and whatever, it's like, no, nah, there's too few days on this earth to, to waste on that, you know. And now some people think I'm a doormat <laughs> and it's pretty easy to take advantage of me. And that might be the case. But I've chosen that that's a much happier way to live, you know, and so I'm totally cool with that. Can I borrow a hundred bucks? Sure. <laughs>
better known as Dr. Seuss, illustrator and author of such children's books as Green Eggs and Ham, Horton Hears a Who, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and my favorite, The Sneetches. If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it, is by Richard Rohr, a popular progressive friar, author, and speaker. He's so controversial, we're soon to have a whole upcoming podcast focusing on his theology here back by the woodpile. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 